I, I, I had to chuckle when I saw that little announcement for what the junior high is doing at the Cat Cafe. You go and you hang out with cats. In the beatnik era, we hung out with cool cats, but they didn't have tails. <laughs> Nobody goes to a snake cafe, for example. I saw something clever the other day. It said, if Adam and Eve had been Cajuns, they would have skipped the apple, eaten the snake, and we wouldn't be in all this trouble. <laughs> so, no disrespect to Cajuns, by the way. They make great food. Well, this morning, I want to share with you something that the Lord has put on my heart. And uh, I want to start out by reading to you Psalm 85. Psalm 85, let me just turn to it. Verses 6 through 8. Here's what it says. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Now, Bible historians and, uh, and, and Bible scholars believe this psalm was written when the remnant of Judah was coming back from the Babylonian captivity. And their, their, their captivity was the result of a judgment placed upon them by God for their downward spiral into idolatry and materialism and, and carnality. And they were returning to a ruined city. They were returning to a demolished temple. And they were returning to a place where they were going to be surrounded by enemies determined to annihilate them. And they were drawing near to God at this point in their history because after 70 years of captivity, they learned that he was all they had left. But they also learned that fortunately he was all that they needed. Well, the Lord has burdened me with a similar sentiment about us, our people, our nation, and the greater church. And I know that many of you feel the same way, that we, we are not returning from captivity. We seem to be in the midst of it right now. And maybe because it's Mother's Day and uh, godly moms want, desire uh, that, that God's guiding hand would be on their children's lives. Or, or maybe it's because we're showing the Jesus Revolution movie this coming Wednesday, which is all about an amazing revival that took place that many of us in this room were literally part of. Maybe it's because I see our country rushing headlong into the kind of moral decline that would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush. Or maybe it's because today I'm entering my seventh decade on earth. And I know that my time with you as your pastor... Is, is short now. It's, it's really a matter of weeks. And I won't have many, if any, opportunities to speak topically to you about something that I believe the Lord has spoken to me. And by the way, I believe he's spoken to many of you as well. And so we're taking a sidestep from our study through 1 Timothy so that I could share this with you this morning. The topic is Revival. The topic is renewal. The topic is new life. And I believe that, uh, well, throughout history, 
In the case of both the Jewish people and the church, God's people at times have fallen into, into periods of decay, spiritual decay. And the history of God's people shows us a story of intervals of spiritual decline followed by times of spiritual renewal during which time the Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of judges and priests and prophets and pastors and even ordinary people to bring about revival, which the dictionary defines as regaining life, consciousness, strength, and it's plain to see, to me, and, I, and again, in talking with many of you, and on Wednesday nights before we have prayer, we usually sit around and we just share our hearts about things that are going on. And it's clear that our nation and the greater church both are in a state of spiritual decline. We've talked about this in several of our Bible studies in here on different weeks. And this could only mean that individual Christians are likewise in spiritual decline. And as a pastor, as a shepherd, as somebody who loves you more than you'll ever know. I don't want us to be in spiritual decline. I want us to be in spiritual victory. So let me share with you something that A.W. Tozer wrote. Um, and it's found in this book, and I highly, highly recommend this book. It's entitled The Crucified Life by A.W. Tozer. It's actually a compilation of many things that he said and wrote in different places. And uh, a man by the name of uh, James Snyder compiled it. It's absolutely a treasure trove. Uh, for those of you who don't know Tozer, he, he's about as close to what you'd know as a Christian mystic as they come in the sense of his, his absolute connection with the Holy Spirit and the way he speaks. But this is what he wrote. Uh, one of the things he wrote about revival, he said the story of revivals throughout the ages has been the story of lone men and women meeting God, of going out and finding God all alone. Sometimes they went down to the church basement, sometimes to the caves, sometimes out under trees, sometimes by haystacks, but they went out alone to meet God. And then revival went out from there. And this morning I want to challenge each one of us I'm not standing here challenging you. I'm challenging us to pray for revival in our own spiritual lives. That we might be part of the greater work of revival that God can do in this nation. And this challenge, by the way, is not based on my observations of any individual in this room or their spiritual life or the way in which they walk. It's simply a recognition that as a nation, our country is in desperate need of revival. And in recognition of this true revival, as Tozer says, it always starts in the hearts of a few, maybe one person who completely surrenders before God. Let's go of everything else. I just want to know you more, is what they say in their heart. And I believe personally, after being the pastor of this church for 20 years, I believe that we can be those people. That maybe the one is here. Maybe more are here. And so to this end, I want to take you through the anatomy of revival. The moment when the fire is kindled in the heart of just one man. 
Our text for this morning is a text that I think many of you know pretty well. It's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And the phases of revival, revival we'll see in this passage is, first of all, a man who sees God for who he really is. And then secondly, uh, having seen God for who he really is, he, he sees himself for who he really is. And what follows from that is confession and cleansing. And then finally, commission for service. And so if you would, please stand with me. We're going to read Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read the first eight verses. And really, this is, this is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. This is one of the most real things about God you can find in all of Scripture. This is what he says. He says, in, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe. Filled the temple, sorry, this, sorry. And, it's, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go out for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God. Just reading the words that Isaiah wrote. Through the anointing of your spirit. In some tiny, tiny way. Brings us to that throne room of God. Overcome by the holiness of your majesty. And in that moment, he could only see you until you gave him a glimpse of himself. And then he realized he has nothing, he is nothing. And his very presence defiles the presence of God. And in that heart of humility, you cleansed him. And then you commissioned him. And so the prayer of my heart this morning, Lord, is here we are. Send us. Lord, as your servant this morning, who desperately wants to see this message right rightly received let nothing I say let nothing I insinuate get in the way of you speaking to the hearts of your people I pray this in the precious name of Jesus amen amen you may be seated well 
Spiritual decline is a certainty whenever anyone takes their eyes off of Jesus and puts, it, puts them on someone else or something else. And yet God has a way of, of using hard times in our lives to re- refocus our attention so that he can bring about revival. And in verse 1 of our text, we, we are told that Isaiah's gaze is about to be refocused at a time that for him was very hard, borderline catastrophic. Because we read here that this, this amazing event that we see in this passage happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Now the Bible and historians tell us some important things about King Uzziah. He began his reign as a 16-year-old, okay? Uh, we don't even let 16-year-olds drive by themselves. And he's, he's now in charge of the kingdom of Judah. And he reigned for 52 years. And he was a good king. If you track through uh, the, the history of the kings of Judah and Israel, you'll see that most of them were desperately wicked. But interspersed, at least in the kingdom of Judah, were good kings. And he was a good king. The Bible said this about him. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he was an outstanding leader. He led his people through military victories. He led his people in impressive building projects. But like so many good men in the Bible, he had flaws. And his fatal flaw was that he, he was filled with pride at one point, And he went outside of his authority and entered the temple and burned incense on the altar of incense, which is something that God's law said was only the providence of the priests. The duties of king and priest did not merge until Christ, except for one man earlier, Melchizedek, but we don't need to go there right now. And, and so because he had trampled the law and the order of God, God struck him with leprosy. And he suffered with leprosy until the day he died. Now, history also tells us that Isaiah was a friend and an admirer of the king. I'm sure that he felt like the kingdom was finally in good hands. They were prosperous. They were following God. They, they, they were winning victories. And then he sees the, the tragedy that visits the king. And he's heartbroken. And he's worried for his nation. And he's concerned for his friend, And he may have even been wondering, how could God, for one mistake, afflict his friend, the king, with such a terrible disease, a loathsome disease, that meant that he would spend most of the rest of his days virtually alone and suffering with the disease. And it's through this tragedy that Isaiah reaches the end of his personal strength, his foundation. He stood on the authority of the king. He felt secure in the rule of Uzziah. Now Uzziah's gone. Woe is us, he would probably be thinking. And in the midst of this despair, he was in a position to see God as God really is. And God opened his vision to see him. And so we see there in verse 1 that Isaiah is shown the true nature of God. This is one of the great passages in scripture that depicts God in all of his holy majesty. And in an instant, Isaiah's senses are saturated with the spectacular attributes of God. Power, glory, the train of his robe filled the temple. Powerful, all-knowing, 
and most especially holy. These seraphim around the throne, they are accentuating, they are proclaiming, they are protecting the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And although Isaiah was frazzled up to this point by the demise and death of Judah's king, he sees something that sometimes we forget too. God is still on the throne. God was on the throne all the time. There was nothing that took God by surprise. There is nothing that ever takes God by surprise. I listen to a lot of the Christian podcasts, as I know many of you do. And I listen to other pastors' teachings. I listen to my own teachings. And, and I have to say, if you take the body of that work, you could come away and think like, woe is us. The world is running out of control. Things are so bad. Things have never been this bad. In a sober moment, we'd have to admit, uh, yes, they have been. In fact, in other parts of the world, they're considerably worse. But through it all, God is on the throne. Through it all, we work to his plan. He doesn't restructure his plan for what's going on here. And he, he knew that Isaiah would reach the place of being at the end of himself. And it's that, that moment that God says, I'm going to open his vision now so that he can see me for who I am and be ready to serve. And so we see there that Isaiah is overcome with the holiness of God. What does that mean? It means that God is simply separated from everything else in the universe. He is not, as some believe, in the rocks, in the trees. We are not participants of the Godhead at all. We have the spirit of God who lives in us. But even there, he is separate from us because he is holy. God is completely separated from the profanity and the, and the depravity of the creation which was corrupted because the Cajuns didn't eat that snake. No, just kidding. <laughs> because of the sin that came into the world. And this magnificence of God's presence that we read that Isaiah sees causes him to shrink like that junior high boy at the junior high dance just wants to go in the corner and disappear. He cannot believe what he is seeing before him. And after he sees this majestic scene, he starts to see something else. Verse 5, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You see that connection there? He saw the Lord of hosts. He saw who God is. And we cannot even begin to imagine all of the sensory clues, cues that he received through his eyes, through his ears, even probably through his skin, what it would be like to be in, in the midst of that power and majesty and purity. You see, every single experience that you and I ever have had has been in the midst of the saturation of sin that has infected the creation. 
the lens through which we see things is our own minds, which are corrupted. The things that we see going on in our view, corrupted by sin. The very things that we experience in our bodies, corrupted by sin. Let me tell you, after seven decades, there's a lot of things that go wrong. It's a good thing the youth aren't in here. They might get discouraged. (laughs) But uh, this is all because of what is our reality. But all of a sudden, he's transported into God's reality. And they often say that comparisons are odious, but they're also inevitable. And so he sees the majesty of the heavenly realm. He sees God high and lifted up. And his next thought is, woe is me. For I am undone. I have, in in a legal setting, in order to go before a court to litigate a matter, you have to have what is known as standing. Standing means that you have a legitimate reason. You have a cause that the law recognizes. And so in a real sense, Isaiah has no standing to be there. This is a place of purity. This is a place of the presence of the holy God. And here I am in my filthy, stinking rags. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. You see, even there he had a a burden for the people that he represented. And it's interesting, this, this, uh, this phrase he uses, I'm a man of unclean lips, because that that presents several different possibilities our lips our mouth it's the gateway to what's inside us if you just got up from the table from eating barbecued ribs we would know what you ate because it would be all over your face that was the way in but our lips are also the way out of things that are in us aren't they jesus said said as much in luke chapter 6 verse 45 he said a good man out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We experience this every day, don't we? Both in ourselves and in others. This is why I've often said, you know, if you're in a store on the road, uh, in a group of people, at the mall, wherever, and somebody, out of the blue, totally unsolicited or undeserved treats you badly or roughly. First thing we're prone to do is respond in kind with an extra measure. But really what we should be thinking is from the abundance of what's in that man or woman's heart, it's coming out of their mouth. And maybe we should turn our concern not to a clever comeback, but instead to finding out from that person, hey man, what's going on? Is everything okay? You doing all right? First of all, that's a very disarming thing to say when someone's just cussed you out. But second of all, it is very much the ministry of being salt and light. It's like, what's going on with you? And, and this is what Isaiah is realizing right here. He realizes that what went into his heart was worldly. Fear, doubt, profanity, lust, coveting, all the things that we experience as human beings. What went into him was that. 
And he knew that he, in, in his traipsing through the world, also participated in the, in the cesspool that can be the world's culture. The things we say, the things we do, the things we participate in, the things that we look at, the things that we approve, the things that we don't speak against. This is all part of, of that swamp we live in. And he realized that he was a swamp dweller, just like everything else that we experience. And so, what does he do? Well, first of all, what did God do? God saw this man's heart. God sees our hearts. God knows when you are ready to lay down whatever it is you hold in your hand in order to to see him better, to see him more clearly. The things that we hold in our hands sometimes take our gaze off of Jesus. In fact, very often we, we keep looking at that which is in our hands so that we might not lose it. And that is a strategy of death, really. And so God sees this man's heart and he sees how grieved he is at what he brought in there before God. And so what does God do? Why, he sends one of these seraphim. And one flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Now, this would be the brazen altar. This would not be the altar of incense, but the brazen altar, the place that sacrifice is made for sin. Atonement is made for sin. And he takes a coal, some of the fire, of that place and he touches it says he touched my mouth with it again this is the gateway to what goes in and what comes out behold this has touched your lips this is the seraphim speaking your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged interesting that connection between the sacrificial altar taking away his sin the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, taking away yours and my sin. The realization that if we would just simply let go of the things that we hold so tightly in our hands, we could be fully appreciative of and benefited by the atonement. We could clearly and perfectly see Christ. And this is what, this is what the Lord does for him because he saw contrition and confession in this man's heart. And then, in this moment, he's emptied. And just to give you another uh, quote from Tozer from this book, The Crucified Life. Tozer wrote, if there is anything you own that God cannot have, you will never have revival. Sometimes the word revival is completely miscast, misused. You can drive by a church and see a sign out front. Revival tonight at 7 o'clock. <laughs> revival only comes from God. How do we know there's going to be revival at 7 o'clock? If you're thinking about scheduling revival, forget it. If you're thinking about punching in to revival, and say, like, well, hurry up and revive, Lord, because I got a thing at 8 o'clock. 
We're not talking revival. As Tozer says, we need to upgrade our language. Revival doesn't come at our schedule. It doesn't come because we say so. Just like years ago, I was at an afterglow service. And one of the gentlemen leading the afterglow service announced that we would be speaking in tongues. Now, I believe in the gifts. I believe in all the gifts. But gifts means you don't schedule them. You don't demand them. You don't even ask for them. They're given graciously by the giver. And we see here that as Isaiah is completely emptied of himself, he's not expecting anything. In fact, he's just happy to be there. He wants so desperately to remain there, but yet he knows he's not dressed for this occasion. And the Lord sees his heart and says, I'll fix that. Touches his mouth with a coal. And God responds to that contrition, as he always does. Here's, here's, a, here's a verse that you guys know well. Second Chronicles verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, and let me just stop there. If my people, God is talking to his people. He's not talking to the world. Hey, world, you're in a miserable shape if you just confess now, that's, that's, a, that's an important message, too. That's the salvation message. But that's not this message. This message is a revival invitation. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I, God, here will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I, God, will hear from heaven and heal their land. Do you think our land needs healing? I do. I do. You know, when you, we've been studying uh, in 2 Thessalonians, we studied sort of the, the on-ramp to the appearance of Antichrist. And one of the, one of the things, that, that sort of the caution light or the red light that, that keeps him from coming on the highway is the church. We are the restraint, the Holy Spirit working through the church is the restraining power on all hell breaking loose. And we start to see, we're starting to see coming attractions of hell in our nation. What could that mean? What, what is the only thing that could mean? It means that the church is weakening. It means that the very things that afflict the world at large and our culture have come through the front door of the church. It used to be that it would sneak under the foundation. It would come through the cracks. It would come in little bits and drabs and drabs and, and pastors and elders who are doing their job would find it and snuff it out. It's not happening that way anymore. It's coming through the front door, which then turns the clergy into the cheerleaders of the demise. And this doesn't have to be. Now, believe me when I tell you, I see the convergence of signs, right? I think the greatest sign that the end is near is not any one sign, not even just the, the formation and the occupation of Israel by the Jews, although that's huge. I, I've taught a message on that, the super sign. But the greatest sign of our day is 
the convergence of all the signs. They're all on the table now. And the thing that concerns me is that I think in some people, some people in the church, it breeds a sense of, okay, we can take our hand off the throttle and just wait. We're going to be out of here soon. So let's just hunker down and wait for the rapture. I hope the rapture happens before we finish this message. I bet you do too. <laughs> but, but in the meantime, we need to be working for the Lord in case he tarries. And you'd say, well, but that sounds counterproductive. No, it's not. We're called to a great commission. God knows those who are being saved. He also knows those he is using to bring the word of reconciliation. And they're sitting in this room. And so, revival is about to spill forth from our friend Isaiah. Because he hears the voice after this cleansing, after this touching of his lips by this coal, the very next thing he hears is the Godhead. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That's the triune God speaking from the throne of God. And guess who speaks next? Isaiah. Now all of a sudden he's, he's on the team. Then I said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. You see that natural progression? This, this, is, this is what we're called to do. You know the famous John 3.16, right? It's wonderful. But John 17 is also wonderful. Because Jesus tells us that God sent his son into the world so that the world through him might be saved. When we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we saw the glory of God. We saw the depravity of ourselves and we cried out, Lord, I laid down myself. Let me have all of you. And then in verse 17, we're told, well, God sent his son in the world to find you so that through him, the world might be saved. And the way in which God has chosen to do that is through his church. And so the very next thing that happens to Isaiah is, send me, send me. So the commission's complete here. Here is a man of unclean lips. He dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips, of corrupted hearts. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He understands both the holiness of God and the worldliness and depravity of himself. And having seen the purity of God, he hates what is true about him. And to the extent that he can lay that down, he does. And God, knowing his heart, purifies him and then the next thing that he does 
that is Isaiah, is take up the commission. Now, the reason the Lord, I believe, um, put this on my heart to share with you today is because the Lord has told me that I need this. I don't plan on retiring from being a Christian. I plan on going further and deeper and reaching higher and laying more and more of myself down. Charles Spurgeon once said, God will never do anything with us till he has first of all undone us. And I'm not praying tragedy or calamity in my life, but I am praying for a, a larger dose of humility, a larger dose of detachment from the world. We're over-entertained. We are the richest society that's ever existed in the history of humanity. We have technological advances, the likes of which we couldn't even imagine not that long ago. And all of these things could lead us to think that we're fine. We pay homage to God on a Sunday. We do a good thing here and there. But we hold tightly to these things that are part of our modern existence because they make our lives better. When the truth of the fact of the matter is, they don't. They don't. There isn't a person here in this room who wouldn't give every single thing they have to help a loved one who's suffering physically, emotionally, financially, and most of all, spiritually. Because when you look in the face of the... I'm looking in your faces now. I see people I love. There's not a single person here that I wouldn't want to give whatever I could give that they could be right with God, healthy, healed, happy. But there's only one place that's going to all come from. And it's from God. You know, none of us, none of us has either the power or the commission to change another person's life. We simply can't do it. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But we do have charge over our own spiritual life. We can decide what we allow to come in we can control what we allow to come out. And if we could be like Isaiah and realize, well, we can't, we can't trust our government right now. And, you know, I, maybe they'll show up at my house now and drag me away. But let's just look at recent time. We can't really trust our government. We can't really trust our public health officials. We can't even trust our military right now. We can't trust our culture. And we see things running headlong into what could be catastrophic in our world. I mean, we've got a superpower, a nuclear armed power in the midst of a hot war in Europe. We have people who are the best technical minds on the planet saying that we, and most of us, we can't even explain why they say it, but we are in an existential crisis with artificial intelligence because unlike nuclear bombs, which can devastate the world but can't make themselves better and can't propagate themselves, artificial intelligence can make itself better. 
And the thing that's always the most scary thing is when you decouple intelligence and power from morality. These are all things going on in our world right now. So we could say in a real sense that we're, if we're not undone, we're close to done. (laughs) And in that moment, we might just want to, and I'm not saying necessarily we have to do this as a group, although that would be kind of nice, and I'll be back in a week and so, and maybe we will, but do what Tozer said. Get off alone with God. It doesn't have to be any big ceremonial thing. You don't have to go to some special mountain. You can just do it at home, in your own room. Maybe you go out to the park. Maybe you go wherever you enjoy being and just get alone with God. Let him show you because sometimes we don't see it. Let him show you what's in your hands. Let him show you what's in your hands. And as we sung here as our last song today, can you surrender that? Here I am on my knees again. We're begging for God. We're begging to see him for who he is. Then we might know who we are. Then we might say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Then he might touch you again. If you're a saved Christian, you're saved. But you might be obscured. And he might just remove the hindrances. You might just have an experience of the glory of God unlike anything you've ever had. And that might just cause you to say, send me. Who knows? Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father God, we know that revival only comes with you. Life only comes from you. Creation came from you. It was corrupted by us. But your heart's desire is perfect fellowship with us. And that's why you sent your son Jesus to us. And we are so thankful that you did. And we are so thankful that he lives in us. And I stand here this morning amidst those that I love so dearly and I I pray, Lord, over them and for them. Lord, that you would show them your glory. Show me along with them. Show us your glory, God. Move in our hearts to set down whatever it is, Lord, whether it be a relationship, a thing, an aspiration, uh, whatever, God. Let us not bind ourselves in the things of the world. We desire to be touched by you, cleansed by you, commissioned by you for new life, for revival, Lord. Lord, won't you revive us again? We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the day. Before you go anywhere, I'm talking over here. Nice try. Can I just tell you that when I went into my office after the sound check for the worship team, you know what was on my desk? A letter from the Orange County Department of the Aging. (laughs) I I kid you not. They wanted me to fill out a survey for something or other. It's like, man.
Well, today's actually Pastor David's birthday, so with that, will you join me in singing happy birthday? Yeah. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Pastor David. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I can't express what you all mean to me and um, just how much I love you. And that's why I just felt compelled to share that because the most precious thing that we can share together is not that cake. It's just not quite big enough. No. <laughs> but the Lord. Love you all. God bless.